Okay, nerds, don't fall out of your chair. But the court has issued five new opinions today in what has been the slowest and least productive term of the court in recent history. They have only heard oral argument in, by my last count, 59 cases this term, instead of their usual 80 or so. And at this point, they have typically issued around 30 decisions compared to the 13 that they had issued as of yesterday. But even if we add in the five from today, the court is still significantly behind their work schedule. But they decided to show up for work today, and I guess that we should be grateful for what we get because, realistically, there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. We take what we get from the gods up there on Mount Olympus and we say thank you. The five new opinions that were issued today include Simonelli v. United States, Percoco v. United States, Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico v. Centro de Periodismo Investigativo, National Pork Producers Council v. Ross, and Santos Zacaria v. Garland. And now, I give you the opinion of the court in Simonelli v. United States. Enjoy. Justice Thomas delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. In this case, we must decide whether the Second Circuit's long-standing right-to-control theory of fraud describes a valid basis for liability under the federal wire fraud statute, which criminalizes the use of interstate wires for any scheme or artifice to defraud or for obtaining money or property by means of false or fraudulent pretenses, representations, or promises. Under the right-to-control theory, a defendant is guilty of wire fraud if he schemes to deprive the victim of potentially valuable economic information necessary to make discretionary economic decisions. Petitioner Louis Simonelli was charged with, tried for, and convicted of wire fraud under this theory, and the Second Circuit affirmed his convictions on that same basis. We have held, however, that the federal fraud statutes criminalize only schemes to deprive people of traditional property interests. Because potentially valuable economic information necessary to make discretionary economic decisions is not a traditional property interest, we now hold that the right to control theory is not a valid basis for liability under Section 1343. Accordingly, we reverse the Second Circuit's judgment. Part 1. This case begins with then-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's Buffalo Billion Initiative. On its face, the initiative was administered through Fort Schuyler Management Corporation, a nonprofit affiliated with the State University of New York, SUNY, or SUNY, and the SUNY Research Foundation. It aimed to invest $1 billion in development projects in upstate New York. Later investigations, however, uncovered a wide-ranging scheme that involved several former Governor Cuomo's associates 
most notably Elaine Calieros and Todd Howe. Calieros was a member of Fort Schuyler's board of directors and was in charge of developing project proposals for Buffalo Billion. Howe was a lobbyist who had deep ties to the Cuomo administration. Each month, Calieros paid Howe $25,000 in state funds to ensure that the Cuomo administration gave Calieros a prominent position in Buffalo Billion. Simonelli had a similar arrangement. His construction company, L.P. Simonelli, paid Howe $100,000 to $180,000 each year to help it obtain state-funded jobs. In 2013, Howe and Calieros devised a scheme whereby Calieros would tailor Fort Schuyler's bid process to smooth the way for L.P. Simonelli to receive major Buffalo Billion contracts. First, on Calieros's suggestion, Fort Schuyler established a process for selecting preferred developers that would be given the first opportunity to negotiate with Fort Schuyler for specific projects. Then, Calieros, Howe, and Simonelli jointly developed a set of requests for proposal, RFPs, that treated unique aspects of L.P. Simonelli as qualifications for preferred developer status. Those RFPs effectively guaranteed that L.P. Simonelli would be, and was, selected as preferred developer for the Buffalo projects. With that status in hand, L.P. Simonelli secured the marquee $750 million Riverbend project in Buffalo. After an investigation revealed their scheme, Simonelli, Howe, Calieros, and several others were indicted by a federal grand jury on 18 counts, including, as relevant here, wire fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1343 and conspiracy to commit wire fraud in violation of Section 1349. Throughout the grand jury proceedings, trial, and appeal, the government relied on the Second Circuit's right-to-control theory, under which the government can establish wire fraud by showing that the defendant schemed to deprive a victim of potentially valuable economic information necessary to make discretionary economic decisions. The government's indictment and trial strategy rested solely on that theory and it successfully defeated Simonelli and his co-defendants' motion to dismiss by relying on that theory. In addition, it successfully moved the district court to include certain defense evidence as irrelevant to that theory. The government also relied on that theory in its summation to the jury. Consistent with the right-to-control theory, the district court instructed the jury that the term property in Section 1343, includes intangible interests such as the right to control the use of one's assets. The jury could thus find that the defendants harmed Fort Schuyler's right to control its assets if Fort Schuyler was deprived of potentially valuable economic information that it would consider valuable in deciding how to use its assets. The district court further defined economically valuable information 
as information that affects the victim's assessment of the benefits or burdens of a transaction, or relates to the quality of goods or services received or the economic risks of the transaction. The jury found Simonelli guilty of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and the district court sentenced him to 28 months imprisonment, followed by two years supervised release. On appeal, Simonelli challenged the right to control theory, arguing that the right to control one's assets is not property for the purposes of the wire fraud statute. Defending the wire fraud convictions, the government relied solely on the right to control theory. The Second Circuit affirmed the convictions based on its long-standing right to control precedents, holding that by rigging the RFPs to favor their companies, defendants deprived Fort Schuyler of potentially valuable economic information. We granted certiorari to determine whether the Second Circuit's right-to-control theory of wire fraud is a valid basis for liability under 18 U.S.C. Section 1343. And we now hold that it is not. Part 2. Section A. The wire fraud statute criminalizes schemes or artifices to defraud or for obtaining money or property by means of false or fraudulent pretenses, representations, or promises. Although the statute is phrased in the disjunctive, we have consistently understood the money or property requirement to limit the scheme or artifice to defraud element because the common understanding of the words to defraud when the statute was enacted referred to wronging one in his property rights. This understanding reflects not only the original meaning of the text, but also that the fraud statutes do not vest a general power in the federal government to enforce integrity in broad swaths of state and local policymaking. Accordingly, the government must prove not only that wire fraud defendants engaged in deception, but also that money or property was an object of their fraud. Despite these limitations, lower federal courts for decades interpreted the mail and wire fraud statutes to protect intangible interests unconnected to traditional property rights. For example, federal courts held the fraud statutes reached such intangible interests as the right to honest services, the right of the citizenry to an honest election, and the right to privacy. In McNally v. United States, 1987, this court halted that trend by confining the federal fraud statutes to their original station, the protection of individual property rights. Congress then amended the fraud statutes specifically to cover one of the intangible rights that lower courts had protected under the statutes prior to McNally the intangible right of honest services. The right-to-control theory applied below first arose after McNally prevented the government from basing federal fraud convictions on harms to intangible interests unconnected to property. As developed by the Second Circuit, the theory holds that, since a defining feature of most property is the right to control the asset in question, 
the property interests protected by the wire fraud statute include the interest of a victim in controlling his or her own assets. Thus, a cognizable harm occurs where the defendant's scheme denies the victim the right to control its assets by depriving it of information necessary to make discretionary economic decisions. The right to control theory cannot be squared with the text of the federal fraud statutes, which are limited in scope to the protection of property rights. The so-called right to control is not an interest that had long been recognized as property when the wire fraud statute was enacted. Significantly, when the Second Circuit first recognized the right to control theory in 1991, decades after the wire fraud statute was enacted and over a century after the mail fraud statute was enacted, it could cite no authority that established potentially valuable economic information as a traditionally recognized property interest. And the Second Circuit has not since attempted to ground the right to control theory in traditional property notions. We have consistently rejected such federal fraud theories that stray from traditional concepts of property. For its part, the government, despite relying on the right to control theory for decades, including in this very case, now concedes that if the right to make informed decisions about the disposition of one's assets, without more, were treated as the sort of property giving rise to wire fraud, it would risk expanding the federal fraud statutes beyond property fraud as defined at common law and as Congress would have understood it. Thus, even the government now agrees that the Second Circuit's right-to-control theory is unmoored from the federal fraud statute's text. The right-to-control theory is also inconsistent with the structure and history of the federal fraud statutes. As recounted above, after McNally put an end to federal courts' use of mail and wire fraud to protect an ever-growing swath of intangible interests unconnected to property, Congress responded by enacting Section 1346, which, despite the wide array of intangible rights courts protected under the fraud statutes pre-McNally, revived only the intangible right of honest services. Congress's reverberating silence about other such intangible interests forecloses the expansion of the wire fraud statute to cover the intangible right to control. Finally, the right to control theory vastly expands federal jurisdiction without statutory authorization. Because the theory treats mere information as the protected interest, almost any deceptive act could be criminal. The theory thus makes a federal crime of an almost limitless variety of deceptive actions traditionally left to state contract and tort law, in flat contradiction with our caution that, absent a clear statement by Congress, courts should not read the mail and wire fraud statutes to place under federal superintendents a vast array of conduct traditionally policed by the states. And, as it did below, the Second Circuit has employed the theory to affirm federal convictions regulating the ethics, or lack thereof, 
of state employees and contractors, despite our admonition that federal prosecutors may not use property fraud statutes to set standards of disclosure and good government for state and local officials. The right-to-control theory thus criminalizes traditionally civil matters and federalizes traditionally state matters. In sum, the wire fraud statute reaches only traditional property interests. The right to valuable economic information needed to make discretionary economic decisions is not a traditional property interest. Accordingly, the right-to-control theory cannot form the basis for a conviction under the federal fraud statutes. Section B. Despite indicting, obtaining convictions, and prevailing on appeal based solely on the right-to-control theory, the government now concedes that the theory as articulated below is erroneous. The government frankly admits that, to the extent that language in the Second Circuit's opinions might suggest that depriving a victim of economically valuable information, without more, necessarily qualifies as obtaining money or property within the meaning of the fraud statutes. That is incorrect. That should be the end of the case. Yet the government insists that its concession does not require reversal because we can affirm Simonelli's convictions on the alternative ground that the evidence was sufficient to establish wire fraud under a traditional property fraud theory. With profuse citations to the records below, the government asks us to cherry-pick facts presented to a jury charged on the right-to-control theory and apply them to the elements of a different wire fraud theory in the first instance. In other words, the government asks us to assume not only the function of a court of first view, but also of a jury. That is not our role. Accordingly, we decline the government's request to affirm Simonelli's convictions on alternative grounds. Part 3 The right-to-control theory is invalid under the federal fraud statutes. We therefore reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.